Today we continue in our Make Room series, just to kind of give you an idea of where we're going with this kind of marathon series. Uh, next week we're going to talk about making room in our giving, and what we just are, are exercising and doing today. Uh, the week after that we're going to talk about making room in worship, uh, and then we're going to talk about making room for others, making room for the lost. Uh, and so I'm excited to, to finish this series up with you. I'm excited to go up to Easter Sunday with this, and then Easter will pivot and we'll get out of the Make Room series. And, but, but it's been a, a great start, I believe, to 2023. I hope that, man, what Elizabeth said, I hope everybody can identify with that, that we're learning, we're growing, God's inspiring us and challenging us. And I want to talk today about something that, if you're a Christian, may seem a little basic, may seem a, a, a little fundamental, may seem a little foundational, uh, and yet I think sometimes it's important for us to go back to the fundamentals. Uh, in, in any sports team that you're ever a part of, they're always going to always go back to the fundamentals. They're, you know, the basketball team's going to work on dribbling. Uh, the baseball team's just going to work on throwing and swinging, right? Like we're always going to work on the fundamentals. And so this is one of the fundamentals of following Jesus. Today we're going to talk about making room for the Word of God. Making room for the word. I don't know what your time in the word of God looks like, but I know this, you will never regret making room for the word of God. You will never look at your calendar and be like, man, I spent too much time reading the Bible this week. You're never going to get to the end of the week or the end of the month and be like, well. My priorities are all out of whack. I would spend too much time in the Word, right? Like it's never happened. There's never a person that's like, man, I got too much Bible. I need to start focusing on some other things. It's always going to feed you. It's always going to encourage you. It's always going to sharpen you. It's always going to reveal things to you. And we know this, and yet despite the fact that we know it, a lot of times we're not so good at applying it, at walking it out, about spending time in the word of God. And so this morning I've got kind of a, a two-part message. I don't mean two parts like we did uh, with, with prayer where we did one Sunday and then did part two the next Sunday. My goal and my hope is we'll get through the whole message today. I believe that we will. Uh, but there's kind of two different sections that I want to cover with you. But I want to start out with this. Three places that we must make room for the word of God. I believe there's three places that each of us need to start to create some space for God's word. Now, hopefully, for most of us, this is review. Hopefully, for most of us, this is just an encouragement to keep doing what we're doing, to, to maybe take it up a little bit of a notch. But, but for some of us, this may be an encouragement to start. For some of us, we may be intimidated by the Bible. We, we, we may, man, have trouble focusing. I know a lot of people in our generation will make the excuse, well, I'm, I just don't like to read. Uh, and, and I get it. Uh, but the word is worth it. You can learn and create those appetites. In fact, I think with just about anything, the more that you do it, the more that you'll desire it. You train yourself to want it. And the Bible says that the Bible is, is like bread. I don't know about you. We went to an Italian restaurant last night, had a date night. My sister watched the kids. And uh, first thing we got was some bread. And I ate more than my share, right? I just keep going back for more. I love some bread. And so when you get into the word of God, it's like bread. I want more and more. Keep it coming, Olive Garden. Like keep those baskets coming back out. I love some bread. So, so three places we must make room for the word of God. Number one is the obvious one, the one you probably already thought about. But number one, we need to make room for the word in our schedule. 
Make room for the word in your schedule. The best advice I ever got when it came to spending time with God is to schedule it. Don't just get around to it. Don't just spend time with God when, when the Holy Spirit moves your heart, right? Like sometimes we think that we've just got to have like this, this beautiful moment with God that's just organic and it's just going to happen. And I don't know about your life, but my life, it doesn't just happen because I got stuff going on. We got distractions. We got voices. We got stuff to do. And so you got to make room for the word of God in your schedule. What does that look like? For you, it might be different than what it looks like for the person next to you. But figure out what works in your schedule. And when we say make room, it might mean you got to get rid of something else. You might even have to get rid of something that's good, something that's enjoyable. We're going to get rid of something that's good for something that's better. And I believe, and I think Hunter's already voiced this, this year, that, that if you'll make room for the word in your schedule, there's just something that happens where somehow you just have more time. Somehow you just have the ability to get the stuff done that you need to get done, that, that God multiplies that time back to you. And I believe that applies to, to the word, to prayer, to worship, to whatever, to serving, right? Whatever time we carve out for God, whatever we give to him, he always gives it back to us 30, 60, and 100 times over. Um, but we got to intentionally make some room in our schedule. I want to share with you some statistics. The Center for Bible Engagement did a study a few years ago of 40,000 Americans from the ages of 8 to 80. So, so they got a big, diverse group of people. They did a study and they asked them uh, a number of questions and, and how many times a week did they spend time in the Word of God. And here's what they found. There was very little difference in the lives of people who spend time in the Word of God once a week and zero times a week. That, that people that, that spend time just once a week, it, it doesn't make much of an impact at all. That the, the percentages of issues, of struggles, of sins, of addictions, like all these things were just about the same. In fact, two times a week had very little effect. Three times a week, they started to see a, a little bit of a heartbeat, a little bit of improvement, but at four times a week, everything changed. And I think that's interesting because four times a week basically means over half the week, right? Now, I believe we should aspire for seven days a week, and I believe we serve a God of grace, and so if you miss a day or, you know, like you, you're not cast out, you're not under judgment, uh, but, but the more that we build that habit in, the better we are. I don't know about you, I like to eat every day, uh, man, I, I, seven days a week, I'm going to spend some time with some food, uh, and so it's better for us if we're spending time in the Word every day, but look at what happens at four times a week. People who read the Bible four times a week, comparatively to people who read the Bible zero times a week, those who, feelings of loneliness drop 30%. So isolation doesn't mean that they have more community, but, but that loneliness began to drop. Why? Because they're spending more time with God. And God's filling that. God's stepping in. Anger issues drop by 32%. You've got a, a spouse, a family member who's struggling with anger, get them in the Word of God. Uh, bitterness in relationships dropped 40%. Bitterness dropped 40%, almost by half for those who spend time in the Word of God four times a week or more. Alcoholism and drug use dropped 57%. Over half by those who chose to spend four days or more in the Word of God. Feeling spiritually stagnant dropped 60%. All of a sudden, you start feeling some, some impact. 
some growth, 60%. Viewing pornography dropped 61%. So they start getting set free. And they start filling up on something else rather than the things that the world has to offer. Now, now, now check this. It's not just negative things that we're set free of. Now there's some positive things. People who spend four week, times a week in the Word of God sharing their faith jump by 200%. 200%. Why? Because they got something to share. God's showing me this. God's speaking this into me. I got something to speak up about. Your confidence spiritually begins to go up. Your connection with the Holy Spirit is sharpened, and so you start sharing your faith. Those who read the Bible four times a week, disciple others, jumps 230%. Word is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates joints and marrow. It gets inside of us if we'll let it. And so there's something that happens if we'll start to say, I'm not just going to read the Bible on Sunday because I go to church. I'm not just going to read the Bible maybe on, on Thursday because I'm in a small group. But I'm going to set aside time to get in the word for myself consistently, daily, and things are going to start to change. There's going to start to be an impact. And sometimes we see that impact immediately, and sometimes we see that impact over time. Right? Some, for, for some of us, maybe just because the way that we're wired, because we're not good at reading, because our reading comprehension isn't high, our focus isn't great, it may not start happening day one. But that consistency, that faithfulness of getting in the word, it starts to get inside of you. And so I cannot challenge you enough, encourage you enough, make room for the word of God in your schedule. Number two, make room for the word in your heart. In your heart. Psalm 119 says famously, David says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So yes, read the Bible. Yes, get in the Bible. But if you really want it to start impacting you, man, start hiding it in your heart. What, is that, what do I mean? Memorize it. Man, start, start putting stuff in. The, God's people used to be really good at memorizing scripture. And we have gotten into a lazy, unfocused generation where we're terrible at this. But the more of God's word you can hide in your heart, the more it's going to be ready for you when you need it. What does David say? He says, I hide your word in my heart so that I don't sin against you. I know what your expectations are. I know what you're asking of me. It's hidden in my heart. Not just I've heard it. Not just I've read it. Not just I've seen it. But I've let it become part of my DNA. I've let it become part of my identity. Part of who I am. So that when I'm faced with that temptation. When I'm faced with that situation. I have a ready response. No. This is what the word of God says. And I'm not going to give in to this. We've got to make room for the word in our schedules. But that's just the beginning. Now let's start making room for the word in our heart. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you memorized a new scripture? If I'm being honest, it's been a minute for me. Man, it's, it's been a little while since I focused on memorizing scripture. As a, as a kid, I, I memorized a lot. Man, in, in children's ministry and youth ministry, we were challenged. I remember one time, like, in kids' ministry, we were going to get a pizza party, if we met, and we got to make our own pizza. And I had never made my own pizza before. I memorized, like, 18 verses in the book of Psalms. Like, I was ready to throw down with some mozzarella and some, some marinara sauce and some pepperoni. Like, you know, I'm, like, not like a fancy pizza eater. Uh, but, but I was ready to go. I memorized 18 verses, and, and it made such a difference in my life. And... It's something that I've honestly kind of drifted away from. 
Like, I, I know the word. I, I, I know parts of the word, but it's not something I'm actively choosing to do. And I think it's something that I need to. And so, man, if you're in that same boat, I'm not here to condemn you or shame you today. I'm not here to stand up on the stage and look down on everybody and be like, I've got this together and you need to fix it. Because I don't have it together. Listen to what the word of God said. Say, man, we got to make room for the word in our heart, man, I'm going to recite it, I'm going to memorize it, I'm going to write it on, a, on an index card or, or put it in my phone, put it somewhere where I can see it, and I'm going to stand on it and believe it. And I, I think we could each memorize a verse this week, right? I, I think we could each memorize four verses a month. Like, I don't think that's beyond our capabilities. We, we, we have that functionality, we just don't walk in it. And so, man, let's hide the word of God in our hearts. Amen? Amen. Thirdly, we're going to start making room for the word in our thoughts. Make room for the word in our thoughts, in our, in our mind. Joshua 1.8 puts it this way. It says, this book of the law will always be on your lips. The, the old translation says, shall not depart from your mouth. Meaning it's just continuously there. I'm just speaking it, and I'm speaking it, and I'm speaking it. So we could also say make room for it in your mouth. That the word's coming out of your mouth. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if I'm speaking it, I'm hearing it, and it's building my faith. But it goes on to say this. It says, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful, what? To do everything written in it. David says, I'm going to hide it in my heart so that I don't sin against you. Joshua says, this book of the law shouldn't depart from your mouth. It's going to always be on your lips. I'm going to meditate on it so that I do it. So then I walk it out, and then it says this, it says, then you will be prosperous and successful. I don't know about you, I like that promise. I'll take a little more prosperity. I'll take a little more success in my life. The word of God is the key to that success that we would meditate on it. The, the picture here uh, of meditating on the word is the picture of the, of the cow chewing the cud. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but cows have like four stomachs, and so they eat some grass, and, and it goes down, and then they bring it back up, and it's incredibly nasty. I'm not sure why God did this, other than maybe to teach us about the Word of God, but he brings it back up, and he chews on it some more, and then he digests it again, and then he brings it up, and he chews it some more, and I don't really understand the science behind it or the reasoning behind it, but I know this, the Word of God has the same idea, the same picture, that I'm going to get it in me, and I'm going to bring it up, and I'm going to chew on it. What is that? That's in my mind. I'm gonna th man, what, is, what are you trying to tell me about this, God? What are you speaking? So I'm not just going to read it and forget it. I'm not just going to memorize it so I can rotely speak it. I'm actually going to meditate on it so I understand what God's trying to say. So, so I understand what he wants me to do with it. God, I'm going to open the door. I'm going to spend some time thinking on this. When, when I'm driving, I'm going to set aside some time when I'm alone where, God, I can just meditate on your word, where I can chew on your word. I used to know a student way, way back in the day, uh, and, and, and he would share something from the word, and then he'd say, uh, he'd say, take a bite, chew on it, it's delicious. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, uh, kind of a funny phrase, but, but I think of that when I, when I talk about this, because it stuck with me, right? Chew on it, it's delicious. Man, is the word of God delicious? We're saying honey in the rock, right? That, that there's this idea that, that God has something sweet for that God has something that will satisfy. And I believe his word can absolutely be that to us if we'll train ourselves to make time in our schedule, make room, make room in our heart, make room in our thoughts, 
in our mind for us to study the Word of God, to meditate on the Word of God. I've got one more way for us to make room that's going to kind of transition us to the second half of our message. So we're going to make room in our schedule, we're going to make room in our heart, we're going to make room in our thoughts. And next we're going to make room for the authority of the Word. Make room for the authority of the room. I said that and the room got quiet. Why? Because every one of us by nature are rebellious people. We don't like authority. We don't like somebody that's in charge. We don't like somebody that wants to tell us what to do. And so when we start talking about authority in our postmodern culture, in, in our culture that, that emphasizes subjectivity, that man, you've got your truth and I've got my truth and they've got their truth. We don't like something that can actually be an objective truth. But can I just tell you, the word of God is going to do nothing for you if you pick and choose what you like. It's not a buffet. We don't get to go through and be like, yep, double helping of that. Nope, I'm going to pass on the green beans. I don't need that, right? Like the word of God is not going to help you if you pick and choose what you like. Because if you pick and choose what you like, you're saying that the Bible is not the authority. You're the authority. And it's the, I, I identify with this. I, I like this part of Jesus. But, you know, that, that stuff, that's, that's just old mentality. Man, those rules, those, those standards, man, that's just a different world. And so we're going to ignore that and leave that behind. And if the word of God is going to make a difference in your life, if the word of God is going to change something in you, you've got to choose to yield to its authority. In other words, when your life has one thing and the word of God says something else, you're going to choose to say, you know what, the word's way is better. What are we just saying and make room? Your way is better. Sorry, I shouldn't sing. I promise y'all won't do that. Right? We declared it. We spoke it out of our mouths. But do we believe it? If we believe his way is better, then we'll believe his word is better. See, the, one of my favorite comparisons, I, I love talking about the, the illustrations the Bible has. It talks about the Bible's like bread, right? The, it talks about the Bible's like a sword. It talks about the, the Bible's like a rock. Well, it also teaches us the Bible's like a mirror. And when we look into the Word of God, we see that thing that's hanging out of our nose, right? Like, like we see the hair that's out of place. We see stuff that doesn't line up that's in a place it should not be. And if we'll submit to the authority of the word of God, when we look at ourselves in the mirror and we see something out of place, we say, you know what? Thank you, God, for revealing this to me. I'm going to go to work to fix it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go get my haircut. I'm going to go get a tissue. I'm going to blow my nose, right? Like I'm going to do what I need to do to where this thing that is out of place isn't out of place anymore. I'm going to line up my face with what I want to, the mirror to reflect. It's so powerful when we allow the word to show us ourselves, to show us the things that are off. Now, the beautiful thing is the mirror also shows us things that are great about us because it, it teaches us our identity in Christ. Because it teaches us who he sees us as and what he declares over us. So it's not just discouraging like some of us were like, man, I, don't, I hate looking in the mirror. Please don't compare the Bible to a mirror because I'm not going to look at the Bible if it's a mirror. Like, I don't want to see me, right? But, but the Bible reflects back to us, man, this is what God says about you. This is what he sees in you, and it builds you up and encourages you. So we're going to make room for the authority of the word. Barna Research Group is kind of the, 
the, the preeminent, like the standard when it comes to research on, especially on things related to, to faith and religion. And their most recent study came out in 2021 and it said this, it said 20% of Americans say the Bible is the literal word of God. 20%, one in five. That is down from 24%, just four years before in 2017, down from a high of 40% in 1980 and 1984. I was born in 1980, so I was born into an, an America that had twice as much faith in the word of God as the America we have right now. In my lifetime, our faith in the authority of the world, word has been cut in half. And so... We can, we, can, we can look at the culture and get really frustrated and annoyed, and we can talk about Hollywood, and we can talk about politics, and we can point our finger in a lot of different directions. But I'm afraid God primarily points the finger at the church. That if we would live and act as though we actually believe the word of God is true, that it would be a lot easier for the culture to start to believe that the word of God is true. The Bible actually says the judgment starts in the house of God. See, God doesn't look down and decry the culture. He doesn't look down and decry the politics. He looks down and says, church, wake up. Church, I, I came for you. I rescued you. I've given you something. I've entrusted you with the word. Man, step on it. Stand on it. Believe it. Live it. James famously says, don't merely listen to the word. And so deceive yourselves. Do what it why has faith decreased by half in the word of God in my lifetime? Because a lot of Christians don't do what the word of God says. And the word sees that. He says, I don't need you anymore. I don't have time for that. Man, why, 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 why would I embrace something that you don't really believe yourself? Now, please understand, yes, we've all sinned and come short. And yes, a righteous man falls seven times. And I'm not saying you've got to live a perfect life or you're a failure as a Christian and everybody's going to hell because of you. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What I am saying is, when something's out of line in your life, go to war with it. Man, when there's something there that you know isn't of God, choose, God, I'm going to choose your way. That's why we say you're free to struggle here. Because struggling says I'm not content with where I'm at. God has something better for me. And I may not have it all together. I may not have it all mastered. I probably won't have it all mastered this side of heaven. But I'm pursuing God's best. My heart is for God's best for my life. And if we'll choose that, I believe it will make an incredible, incredible difference. So we're going to make room for the authority of the word. Psalm 119 says this. It's an incredible chapter on the word. But one section, 137 to 138, says, You are righteous, Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. I love David's declaration that the word, the standards of the word are fully trustworthy. Not 80% trustworthy. Not somewhat trustworthy, not trustworthy except for this stuff that I don't like, that I can put out. No, the word is fully trustworthy. So I want to take a, a few moments today, 10 minutes or so, and talk about why we can trust the Bible. I want to build your faith in the word. If we're going to submit to the authority of the word, then we got to understand that it can be trusted. So why? Why can we declare that the word is trustworthy? Well, I want to give you three reasons why you can trust the Bible, I believe this, if you want to know God, if you want to live up to his call on your life, you're going to have to begin to close the distance between you and scripture. 
You have to close that gap between you and the word. You got to get in his word. It will challenge you. It will equip you. It will build you up. It will make such a difference in your life. So three reasons we can trust the Bible. Number one is the unity of the Bible. The unity of the Bible. The Bible was written by over 40 different authors over a time span of 1,500 years. And yet there's a singular message in the word of God over that time frame. The one commentator put it this way, says the Bible has a remarkable inner consistency written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors from kings to commoners. So this wasn't just one demographic that was writing scripture. Uh, Kings and commoners written in three different languages, written on three different continents, written in a multiplicity of political and socioeconomic cultures and contexts, yet it's one book, one singular message, no inconsistencies or contradictions. There is no other book even remotely like the Bible. No other book even remotely like the Bible. Do you believe that? Have you seen that? Why? Because it's living and active. Because it's not just written by men. Yes, God used some people to write it down, but it's not their word. It is his word. Second Peter chapter 1 says this about the word. says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy or scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. How can there be a unity between 40 different authors, 1,500 different years? Imagine 40 of us trying to agree on anything, right? Imagine 40 of us just sitting down and, hey, you write a chapter on this, and I'll write a chapter on this, and, and we'll see what comes together. It's going to be disjointed. It's going to be broken, and that, that's people from the same generation, from the same town, from the same church. And yet over 1,500 years that, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 generations, 40 plus authors, three languages on three continents, kings who were in charge and authority to slaves who were in captivity. This massive gap of people who wrote down the word and yet there's one singular message about Jesus and all points to him. God spoke it, man wrote it, and today we have it. It's been passed down. People sacrificed to be able to give us the word. They died to be able to pass it on, to translate it into the native languages of different people. We can believe in the word because of the unity of the Bible. We can trust it. Secondly, we can trust the word because of the accuracy of the Bible. The accuracy of the Bible. The Bible has incredible Accuracy. I don't know if you guys know who Josh McDowell is, but Josh McDowell is an author, a speaker, and, and just an incredible leader in the church who set out a number of years ago uh, as a Bible, or not a Bible student, as a college student uh, who was an atheist. He set out to prove that God didn't exist. And there's a, a number of these people out there. Lee Strobel's another one. And a, there are a few others who started out as atheists with this mission. I'm going to prove there is no God. I'm going to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt God doesn't exist. And in the midst of their pursuit of proving there is no God, God shows up and reveals himself. And he's like, what's up? Uh, and, and just makes this radical transformation in his life. So let me share with you uh, some things that Josh McDowell said in one of his books, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He says, the Bible takes place in real, pla takes place in real places in real time. It's set alongside of historical events. And when we look to historical data or we look to archaeological evidence, we see corroborative evidence for the text 
of the Bible. In other words, the Bible does not teach on people that didn't exist. It's, it's set in a historical context. In fact, many times, worldly scholars have come up and said, hey, this part of the Bible never happened. For instance, there, there was for a long time where the world rejected that there was ever a King David. King David was a myth. He was a fable. We, we don't have evidence of his life. Uh, and yet archaeological evidence has now produced beyond the shadow of a de- doubt. They, they have record of him from that era, from when he existed. And, and so now the world accepts that King David was a historical figure. And that's just one example. There, there's a number of these where, man, the world says, nope. Uh, another one is the walls of Jericho. Uh, they, they believed for a long time that Jericho was, was a fable. Uh, that this story of Joshua coming in and the city of Jericho that never happened, never existed. They had no archaeological evidence of it, so they assumed that it wasn't true. And they ended up finding the walls of Jericho intact. Uh, and what they found out is rather than crumbling and tumbling down the way that we kind of always picture the walls of Jericho, that what actually happened is the earth opened up and swallowed the walls. And, and the people of Israel walked right in. To Jericho, And time and time again, as they make new discoveries, the wall of evidence for why God didn't exist or why the Bible isn't true just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. The more discoveries they make, the more that it lines up with what the Bible actually teaches. We see this again and again. Um, how can we trust the Old Testament? In 1947, there was a young man who was a shepherd in Israel, uh, and he was watching his sheep, and he got bored, and so he starts throwing some rocks, uh, and he actually starts throwing some rocks into a, a nearby cave, and it made a really funny sound, and so there was a team that went in after he reported this funny sound. They went into the cave, and they started excavating it, and that's where they found what you've probably heard of called the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. Uh, let me give you some information. This is also from Josh McDowell. Uh, He says this, he says, the Dead Sea Scrolls contained Old Testament scripture dating a thousand years older than any manuscripts that they had at that point in time. So in other words, uh, when when this was discovered in 1947, they had manuscripts that were dated back to right around the time of Jesus. uh, And now they find these Old Testament manuscripts that go way back before that, uh, a thousand years older than they had. Uh, When comparing the manuscripts at hand with these from a thousand years earlier, we find agreement 99.5% of the time. So there was a gap of a thousand years where scripture had been passed down and we didn't have any record of the manuscripts from this era to this era. And when they compared what we already had with what they found, they had agreement 99.5% of the time. And the 0.5% differences are minor spelling variances and sentence structures that don't adjust the meaning of the sentence. Thousand years, nobody tampered with it. Nobody adjusted it. Nobody injected their own thoughts, their own ideas, their own truth for a thousand years. What is that? That's confirmation that the word of God is more than just a human effort because if it was a human effort there'd be a whole lot of other stuff injected I mean look at look at just look at the modern church look at how many differences and beliefs and doctrines and things that we split over and we have division over just in our generation now imagine it over a thousand years the differences from when those manuscripts were to the manuscripts that they had and yet God preserves his word God watches over his word he protects his word and he makes sure that the truth of his word 
gets passed down from generation to generation. Let's talk about the New Testament. Regarding the New Testament, written between 50 to 100 A.D., there, there are more than 5,000 copies. We have more than 500 manuscripts, all within 20 to 25, 20, excuse me, 50 to 225 years of the original writing. Further, when it comes to scripture, scribes, monks, were meticulous in their copying of original manuscripts. They checked and rechecked their work to make sure it perfectly matched what the New Testament writers originally wrote is preserved better than any other ancient manuscript. We can be more certain of what we read about Jesus' life and words than we are certain of the writings of Caesar, Plato, Aristotle, and Homer. So McDowell compares to, to some other famous writers from antiquity, some things that we have. So let me share with you some of the things that we know. Have, how many of you guys have ever heard of the, the Iliad? Uh, you've heard, heard of Homer, wrote these epic poems, right? The Iliad and the Odyssey. Well, Homer, not Homer from the Simpsons, but, but Homer, the blind bard from Greece, uh, he wrote the Iliad in 800 B.C. Uh, the oldest manuscripts we have of the Iliad are from 400 B.C. So there's a 400-year gap from when he wrote to what we have. Um, we have 645 copies uh, of, of manuscripts that were passed down. Nobody doubts that Homer was the author. Nobody doubts that this is what was originally written. With Scripture we have, with the New Testament we have ten times that uh, when the manuscripts and the, the time space is much shorter, 50 to 225 years. Uh, let's talk about Caesar. Caesar wrote the Gaelic Wars, a report of his, his exploits in the military. The copies we have are 1,000 years after he wrote it. He wrote them in between 50 and 100 BC. We have 10 copies of the manuscripts. So when we say manuscripts, uh, these are not paper, right? They're papyrus, they're scrolls. Uh, and the reason why we don't have the originals most of the time is they deteriorate. That, that stuff fades over time. It gets destroyed over time. And so it had to be copied and copied and copied and passed down. Uh, and so Plato, you guys have heard of Plato? Uh, not Plato, but Plato. Uh, he wrote a book called The Republic uh, around 380 B.C., so 380 years before Christ. The earliest copies we have are dated 900 A.D., so 1,300 years later. Uh, and we have seven copies of the manuscript. Yet nobody doubts that Plato wrote The Republic. We could go down... Time and time and time again, and we won't for the sake of time, but nothing from antiquity comes close to the record we have of Scripture. Nothing has comes close to the number of manuscripts. Nothing comes close to the, the time span being so short from the time they were written to the manuscripts that we have. You can trust the unity of the Bible. You can trust the accuracy of the Bible. Number three reason why you can trust the Bible, and this one might be my favorite, is the prophecies of the Bible. The prophecies of the Bible. The Bible contains, depending on whose list you go by, somewhere over 2,000 prophecies. And that uh, Bible scholars vary on that because you can debate, is this one prophecy or two prophecies when there's multiple details in the prophecy? So that's why we don't have a hard and fast number. But there's a lot of prophecies in the Bible. Over 1,500 of those prophecies have already come to pass. So three-quarters of the prophecies in Scripture have come to pass. The ones that have come to pass came to pass with 100% accuracy. 100%, there, there is time and time again we see exactly what was predicted is exactly what happened. Now, obviously, there's another 500 or so prophecies that haven't happened yet. Those all have to do with the end times. 
with the final days. Those are prophecies we look forward to. So we live in what we call the between times. We can look back to what's already happened, what's already been prophesied and fulfilled, and we still look forward to what's been prophesied and hasn't been fulfilled. But three-quarters of biblical prophecy has already come to pass with remarkable accuracy. Let me give you a few examples before we close today. We're almost done. So let's, let's talk about uh, some common prophecies and some obscure ones just to give you some different examples. So the, the Jesus being born of a virgin, predicted first in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, was fulfilled in the New Testament in Luke 26, 1, 26, and 28, 700 years later. Isaiah prophesies it 700 B.C., Jesus shows up 700 years later uh, and is born of a virgin. We'll talk about the ministry in Galilee, that Jesus would minister in the northern part of Israel, in the, the redneck part of Israel, the part of Israel that everybody looked down upon. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 makes the prophecy. It's fulfilled in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 15, as well as a number of other places in the New Testament, but it specifically referenced the fulfillment in Matthew 4. Uh, that Jesus would teach in parables was prophesied in the book of Psalms, in one of the Messianic Psalms, Psalm 80, 78, verse 2, and fulfilled in Matthew 13, as well as, again, a number of other places in the Gospels. Uh, that Jesus would be crucified with thieves was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, fulfilled in Matthew 27, as well as the other biblical accounts of the death of Jesus, that Jesus would die and raise again, prophesied in Psalm 16, verse 10, fulfilled in Matthew 28, again, as well as each of the other gospel accounts of the resurrection. We're going to celebrate it on Easter Sunday in just four weeks from today. Prophesied and fulfilled. G David, who wrote these, uh, lived somewhere around a thousand years before Jesus, these psalms. The ascension of Jesus, that he would actually live and then be lifted up into heaven right before the eyes of his disciples is prophesied in Psalm 66, 18, fulfilled in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Again, a thousand years later. That's six examples of 1,500. Don't have time to get into all of them. You guys would hate me if I tried. I'm not going to do that to you. What am I just trying to say? You can trust the word of God. The word has absolutely supernatural unity. Absolutely supernatural accuracy. Absolute supernatural prophetic fulfillment. These are things that could not be done by accident. These are things that could not happen by coincidence. God has proven his word time and time and time again. And we know this. I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys don't disagree. You're not like, no, I'm not really into the Bible. Like, I, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the word. I don't think you guys are, if you believe that, you wouldn't be here. And yet struggle to make room for the word in our schedule. We struggle to make room for the word in our heart. We struggle to make room for the word in our thoughts. And we struggle to yield to the authority of scripture. So this week, let's take a step forward. This week, let's make some room for God's word, that God's word can speak, that it can penetrate our hearts, that it can reflect back to us the things in our life that are off as well as the things in our life that, that are clicking, that God's doing, the, the improvement, the progress. Man, sometimes it's great to, to look at those like before and after pictures, right? When you, when you mean, we need to do like Daniel fast before and after, like celebrate those 12 pounds we lose over the Daniel fast, right? But, but you see, hey, here's who I was, and this is who I am now. And man, that's the other power of the word of God is it shows your progress. Hey, I'm not dealing with that anymore. 
I'm not struggling with that anymore. I can, I'm, not, I'm not going off on people. My anger issues have subsided by 40% because I'm reading the Word of God four times a week, right? Like, I'm, I'm not looking at porn anymore. Why? Because I've chosen to yield to the authority of the Word of God. Like, I'm choosing His way instead of my way. And God starts setting us free, and we look in the mirror, and we see, wow, I don't look like I used to. I'm not as broken as I used to be. I'm not as discouraged as I used to be. Yeah, I've still got some work to do. Yeah, I've still got some, some, some progress towards the, where the image that I see in the mirror and the image of Jesus that I want to see. But I'm getting somewhere. I'm making some progress. What is that? It's the power of the word of God in our lives. Let's make room for it this week. Would you?